From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. D.C. may be the most heavily policed city in the country and maybe in the whole world. In our second conversation with historian Gerald Horn about his new book, Revolting Capital, he discusses the police brutality and displacement inflicted upon the black population during the Great Depression. Washington has police departments on top of police departments, not only the Metropolitan Police, but also their Capitol Police, their Park Police. The Federal Reserve even has been authorized to have its own police department. And he discusses the rise of U.S. spy agencies, which, contrary to their legal mandate, targeted American citizens, especially the Black left in D.C. We should never lose sight of the fact that because of its sensitivity as being the epicenter of empire, Washington, D.C. probably has the most surveilled, inspected, scrutinized population in the United States, if not on planet Earth. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, we're excited to get to part two of our discussion with Gerald Horn about his new book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. First, some headlines. Fifteen U.S. national security experts signed a Tuesday, May 16th, full-page letter in the New York Times that called on President Biden to start immediate negotiations to end the U.S.-NATO proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. Organized by the Eisenhower Media Network, the letter advertisement described the war as a quote-unquote unmitigated disaster with hundreds of thousands dead, millions displaced, and environmental and economic destruction incalculable, with two nuclear powers involved. The letter provided a more balanced and historical view of the conflict, heretofore not presented in the New York Times or most corporate media. It said in part, quote, The immediate cause of this disastrous war in Ukraine is Russia's invasion. Yet the plans and actions to expand NATO to Russia's borders serve to provoke Russian fears. And Russian leaders made this point for 30 years. A failure of diplomacy led to war. Now diplomacy is urgently needed to end the Russia-Ukraine war before it destroys Ukraine and endangers humanity, end quote. A new report from the Costs of War Project at Brown University is estimating at least 4.5 million people have died as a consequence of the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and Somalia after the United States launched its so-called War on Terror following the September 11, 2001 attacks. As at least 151 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces this year, Palestinians throughout the diaspora are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, or catastrophe, during which more than 700,000 Palestinians were either murdered or violently expelled from their villages to found the State of Israel in 1948. At a recent commemoration organized by Representative Rashida Tlaib on Capitol Hill, and at a march and rally in downtown D.C. on Sunday, May 14th, attendees said that this year's violence, including the violent destruction of entire Palestinian villages in the occupied West Bank, is proof positive that the Nakba is ongoing until today. This is a youth organizer speaking May 14th on the National Mall. 
Our role as youth in the diaspora extends beyond mere solidarity with our people back home. We must actively participate in the struggle regardless of where we find ourselves in the diaspora. The youth have not forsaken the right to return. It remains an unwavering collective will and the destiny of our people. And finally, in other stories we have followed, the U.S. Forest Service has approved a key permit for the controversial $6.6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline to run through part of the Jefferson National Forest in Virginia and West Virginia. Conservation and climate groups have been trying to block the fracked gas pipeline for years. In a statement, the Wilderness Society said the Forest Service has bent to the will of the oil and gas industry and is placing fossil fuel profits above our environment and public safety, end quote. One key backer of the pipeline has been West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. And the D.C. Council voted unanimously Tuesday, May 16th, to urge President Joe Biden and Congress to end the 60-plus-year economic blockade against Cuba and to remove the country's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism. According to the People's World, all council members voted in favor as members of the community rallied in the chamber in support. Entitled Sense of the Council on the Reestablishment of Relations Between Cuba and the U.S., this resolution is in addition to 79 other resolutions approved by city councils, state legislatures, unions, and organizations of the U.S. civil society which seek to eliminate the illegal and deadly economic sanctions and blockade on the Caribbean nation and return to the path of normalization of relations between the two countries. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. And this is part two of our conversation about his latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Always happy to have you and always happy to continue these conversations about your books. And when we spoke last show, we covered a lot of the 1900s, the of the early part of the last century, the summer of 1919. I guess some people refer to it as the bloody summer. That's what some people call it for sure. You know, what happened in Washington, D.C., the fight back against uh, racist violence, the, the fact that people were armed, many veterans returning from World War I, 
that in many ways it was an outlier uh, compared to other communities attacked uh, by these uh, violent white mobs across the country during that summer. And then we kind of came forward from that time. And so what I wanted to talk about today was a uh, move to the 1930s, the Great Depression. And I was really struck by this portion of your book talking about how so much of the Black population we know was not immediately supported by the so-called New Deal, that uh, because of the negotiation or arrangement uh, that had to be made with the uh, Dixiecrats, as we call them, domestic workers and farm workers, people doing agricultural work, were not included in a lot of those benefits. They were intentionally excluded from minimum wage laws, other types of job protections that were developed, you know, by the left, by socialists, by communists to raise the the level of the working class in this country. And I was really startled to learn that people doing very menial jobs, maybe in domestic service here in in Washington, D.C., all of a sudden they may have lost those jobs. They were thrown out of their jobs so that they could be given to white people. So why don't we pick up there and just talk to us about the African-American population and just continuing this theme of racism and radicalism in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s? Well, certainly the New Deal of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the U.S. president from approximately 1932 to his death in 1945, was a kind of mixed blessing for Black people for reasons you have enumerated. Not only that, but as I recall, I quote in the book Truman Gibson, who was a prominent Black businessman who had dealings with Roosevelt. And he speaks unkindly about Roosevelt and what he perceived to be his lack of racial sensitivity. On the other hand, President Roosevelt's spouse, Eleanor, has usually gotten a better press in that regard. But the problem with Eleanor Roosevelt was that she was a fierce anti-communist and therefore was opposed to any sort of NAACP relationship with those to their left. So certainly this developing alliance between the White House and Black America, too, was a mixed blessing. And I should also say that in Washington, D.C., there was an ever-present problem. It won't come as a shock to any in 2023, and that is police terror, police brutality, police misconduct. Believe it or not, it may have been even worse in the 1930s than it is today. And likewise, the question of the unhoused, which I know we talked about a bit last week, but what was striking about the unhoused, the homeless population in Washington, is that many of them were living in alleys, alley dwellers, as opposed to what you see predominantly in the streets of Washington today, that is to say on the uh, sidewalks. As ever, to continue a theme we developed last week, uh, Howard University was prominent during this time. It had a core of left-leaning professors, one of whom was Ralph Bunch, who you may recall leapfrogs from Howard into working with the Office of Strategic Services in the 1940s, a precursor of the U.S. CIA. And then as the United Nations 
is coming into being uh, post-1945, he becomes a leading official at the United Nations and, by the way, plays a rather unfortunate role in the creation of the State of Israel 75 uh, years ago. Likewise, it's interesting to note that at the latter part of the New Deal era, you have the construction of the Pentagon, one of the uh, most uh, sizable structures in the metropolitan area. Uh, Some may recall that the land on which it was built was formerly a flourishing black neighborhood in Virginia. And in a national trend, so-called urban renewal or Negro removal, uh, leads to their being ousted. And there's a a kind of irony, a a bitter irony, in the fact that uh, the Pentagon is built on lands once occupied by black people, given the fact that the the money that goes to the Pentagon uh, could better be spent on human needs, on education, on health care, et cetera. So uh, this is part of the story I tell in this book, Revolting Capital. So I want to go back to the beginnings of the over-policing, let's just call it that, in in Washington, D.C., and how that developed into what is now plainly recognized as the the most policed or over-policed city in the country and perhaps the world, where we have... What is the latest figure? 20 something police departments, and many of these federal agencies have their own police department. Well, we should never lose sight of the fact that Washington, D.C. is the epicenter of the empire, it is the capital of U.S. imperialism, it is a very sensitive urban node. We should have remember that on January 6, 2021, when you had an attempt of what amounts to a coup d'etat, because those who were seeking to overturn the peaceful transfer of power recognized that if they were able to influence events in Washington, uh, they could theoretically uh, seize control of the empire. And because of that sensitivity, uh, Washington has police departments on top of police departments, not only the Metropolitan Police, but also their Capitol Police, their Park Police. The Federal Reserve even has been authorized to have its own police department. You have the headquarters of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, You have the Central Intelligence Agency just outside Washington and Langley, Virginia. You have the National Security Agency, uh, which uh, bugs and monitors electronic communications all over the world. And if you look carefully at my footnotes with regard to this book we're discussing, one of the revelations you may be able to glean is that U.S. intelligence, which supposedly is not legally authorized to monitor and surveil events on these shores, were apparently doing precisely that, particularly at crucial and critical moments, such as the 1968 uprising following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. when Washington, D.C. was rocked to his soul by a 
mass uh, urban uprising, mostly uh, by black people. And we should never lose sight of the fact that because of its sensitivity as being the epicenter of empire, uh, Washington, D.C. probably has the most surveilled, inspected, scrutinized population in the United States, if not on planet Earth. And perhaps that can be correlated with what we also know to be true, which is the mass incarceration, particularly of so many black people, because there are so many opportunities for these police departments who are stumbling over each other and trying to collar uh, black suspects or then shuffling them into the court system and then on a fast track to jail or prison. Right. So as you were speaking, I was able to look up one list, which includes 28 police departments, police agencies operating in the district. And some of these, of course, are local to federal, starting with the Metropolitan Police Department all the way to the DEA, Federal Bureau of Prisons, ATF. It just goes on and on. We know also that this kind of police presence, you know, as I think you you were getting to, you know, it may have started on the level of street arrests, harassing and like terrorizing the unhoused population, people who were indigent, who were jobless, thrown out of work during the Depression. But it also developed into, after World War II, the the rise of the what you would you call it the not secret police but that's what it is but whether called now the intelligence agencies or the national security state police so uh agencies like the CIA uh, uh an expanded role for the FBI and i'm sure that these agencies came into direct conflict, like you said, with the left at Howard University and other people who were fighting against this kind of increased police terror, as well as the Jim Crow, which at that point hadn't been turned back. Howard University was a particular target uh, of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. Recall the story of J. Edgar Hoover uh, roots in the district, a graduate of George Washington University, uh, later serves on the board of GW and is a major figure in helping to explain why GW was one of the last major universities in the district, if not the country, to engage in desegregation. Uh, he serves as FBI director for almost a half century from the 1920s up until the 1970s. Their role expands post-1945 as they become the vector for attack against radicalism, particularly the U.S. Communist Party. And one of the startling revelations that I encountered when doing the research on this book is how they had a particularly noxious impact at Howard University, because Howard University because it was predominantly black university, was seen as a hotbed of dissidents, a hotbed of radicals, and to an extent uh, that was accurate, but certainly that attracted the negative attention of the FBI. And one of the things I, I, found, I found, which was very uh, unsettling, was 
the number of mental problems that were erupting amongst the faculty at Howard University because they felt under so much pressure. Not only that, but then how faculty were turning on one another because of the pressure they were all under. I'm thinking in particular of Rayford Logan, who has been subjected to biographical treatment since he was a leading Black intellectual in his own right, for years the chairman of the history department at Howard University, a man who develops this concept of the nadir, uh, that is to say the period uh, following the collapse of Reconstruction in the 1870s going forward in succeeding decades. Rayford Logan also was a man who bedeviled his uh, female colleagues, particularly Murs Tate, who is now being subjected to biographical treatment by the University of Pennsylvania historian Barbara Savage. Now, part of the evidence for this, and I will leave it to listeners to go to the book to excavate the details of what I'm discussing, but part of the evidence comes from Rayford Logan's diary, which he keeps for decades up until his death approximately 40-odd years ago. And I would say that it's one of the most revelatory diaries, perhaps in the history of Black America, since he rather assiduously, uh, on almost a daily basis, sometimes it seemed an hourly basis, recorded uh, what he was thinking, what he was experiencing. Matter of fact, it it took uh, quite an effort on my part to prevent Rayford Logan from seizing control of my entire narrative (laughs) because what he had to say was so fascinating, so revelatory, so detailed, particularly about these two topics I was just mentioning. That is to say, the mental breakdowns of Howard University faculty coming in stress and his own sexism and male chauvinism towards some of his colleagues. Wow. Well, that sounds like another another movie. Sounds also <laughs> cinematic. <laughs> and so also, since we're talking about individuals, uh, talk about Julius Hobson. Well, he was uh, an ironic figure, a contradictory figure. Uh, he was in the news constantly and incessantly during the struggle against Jim Crow in the 1960s. Uh, He was close to the man then known as Stokely Carmichael, subsequently Kwame Ture. But interestingly enough, an evidentiary of the kind of scrutiny that D.C. activists were subjected to, according to the Washington Post, at least, uh, he at one point flipped and became a kind of agent for the authorities. Now, In the book, I'm able to uncover a number of agents for the authorities, not all of whom were like Mr. Hobson, that is to say, a prominent in the anti-Jim Crow movement. But I think it bespeaks the point I was making a moment or two ago. That is to say, Washington, D.C. is a very sensitive place for the exercise of power, and the U.S. authorities thought it would be malfeasance if they did not scrutinize Black activists heavily, scrutinize radicals heavily, and that they proceeded proceeded to do with gusto. 
Right, right. And I know I would be racing forward a couple of decades, but, you know, I'm thinking about Jack O'Dell, who actually headed the Pacifica Foundation, and he was a confidant and a supporter of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. But the Kennedy administration tried to, you know, put some space in between them and basically asked King not to associate with Odell because he was a socialist or he was, he was on the left. It just reminds me of our, our conversations about Jack Odell and especially in relationship to Paul Robeson and all of this whole conversation we're having actually about the surveillance of these activists, people on the left, it just reminds me of that whole conversation about him and everything he went through and the, in, in conjunction with this emerging really police state. Well, Jack O'Dell, who only passed away a few years ago at the ripe old age of 96, was a kind of legend. Uh, he had roots in Detroit. He attended school in New Orleans at Dillard University. He joined the National Maritime Union, which at that time had left-leaning leadership. You can consult my biography of Ferdinand Smith, a Jamaican who was a founder of that union, to find more detail about this union and about Jack's role in that union. He also had been a member of the U.S. Communist Party, called before the authorities in Washington and grilled because of that relationship, became an early associate of Dr. King. And as you suggested, uh, President Kennedy took Jack into the road, excuse me, took Dr. King into the Rose Garden of the White House to escape the prying eyes of FBI Director uh, J. Edgar Hoover in order to instruct Dr. King to get rid of Jack. And Dr. King said that he would, but he tried to maintain a subterranean relationship with him. And that's one of the factors that causes a deepening rift between the FBI and Dr. King up to J. Edgar Hoover calling Dr. King one of the most notorious liars in the United States of America, if not the most. Uh, Jack also worked with Freedom Ways magazine, which was a communist-initiated journal, uh, which was quite popular. Uh, Dr. King wrote for Freedom Ways, for example, when he made his plea against the war in Vietnam because of Jack's good offices. It was published in Freedom Ways. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, the late playwright, uh, Alice Walker, James Baldwin, uh, so many others contributed to Freedom Ways, where Jack served as an editor. Uh, he also, as you suggested, uh, was the chairman of the board of the Pacific Pacifica Foundation for years, uh, was an advisor to Jesse Jackson during the rainbow campaigns of the 1980s, and was a truly heroic and historic figure who spent some of his most bountiful days in the District of Columbia. Now, before I get back to, I wanted to ask you some more about Julius Hobson and this kind of idea I have about the particular makeup of Washington, D.C. But we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, about his new book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. There are a number of incidents in this book that I think a talented screenplay writer or artificial intelligence, for that matter, could take advantage of. You mentioned the case of Rayford Logan, for example, and his experience at Howard University. And then there's this case of the early 1960s involving this prominent Black woman lawyer. I recall her name being Debbie Roundtree. Her office was near Howard University. She defends successfully a young Black man who was accused falsely of killing a paramour of the then U.S. President John F. Kennedy. The deceased had ties to the CIA, and it's quite a story. Uh, Ben Bradley, uh, who, as you know, was an editor of the Washington Post, uh, he talks about uh, this case in his memoir, which, uh, of course, I draw upon for a number of reasons. And as I was studying that case, it was just one of many cases, one of many examples of what was going on in the district that, to me, needed to be subjected to cinematic treatment. This may be Dovey Johnson Roundtree. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dovey Johnson Roundtree. And she only passed in 2018. And... She was, I'm looking at a website, blackpast.org. Roundtree was also involved in a major but less publicized criminal case in which he successfully defended a black laborer, Ray Crump Jr., who was accused of the 1964 murder of Mary Pinchett Meyer, the wife of a Central Intelligence Agency operative and alleged mistress of the late President John Kennedy. In July 19... 19- 65, Roundtree took the case and argued that Crump, given his limited mental capacity and small size, was incapable of carrying out the murder of Meyer. The not guilty verdict for Crump ironically opened speculation of CIA involvement in Meyer's murder. Wow. So she had a a tremendous career, looked like she was involved in a lot of civil rights cases in terms of, you know, desegregating buses and fair employment practices and all of that. So, yeah, she's been subjected to biographical treatment, too. And uh, I recommend the works that have been written about her. Yeah, well, it's another person that we can we can add to our list. Dovey Johnson Roundtree, 1914 to 2018. OK, so uh, in the uh, we have a lot to cover. So let me let, let me try and um, squeeze a few more things in here. Okay, so as you consider the the surveillance of the black community, including the left, was the black population here especially vulnerable because of the class schisms here? So in other words, was it more likely that you would have kind of black elites here being especially disposed to, I don't know, taking the side of the state? or being more likely agents of the state because it's you have a, such a large black elite here. It's a mixed bag. Uh, 
when you're speaking in those terms, my mind immediately focuses on the late George Murphy, uh, who was part of the Murphy family in Baltimore, a celebrated and well-known family. One of the leaders of that family, of course, founded the Baltimore Afro-American, which of course had a Washington, D.C. edition. Uh, George Murphy was decidedly a man of the left. Uh, he was a close comrade of Paul Robeson, a close comrade of W.E.B. Du Bois. I think also of um, Charlene Drew Jarvis, who was related to the late uh, Dr. Charles Drew, a leading uh, medical professor, professor at the medical school at Howard University. Uh, she too had ties to the left, to the statehood Green Party. But at the same time, I think there is something to what you say. Recall that last week I talked about some of the more unfortunate moments in the history of Howard University in terms of it being a training ground for neocolonial administrators, particularly in Liberia, West Africa. Uh, That unfortunate tradition, not just of Howard, but of Washington, D.C., has continued uh, to the very present. I'm thinking, for example, of Michael Langley, who coincidentally, I imagine, carries the surname of Langley, Virginia, the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency, and uh, is the leader of AFRICOM, the Africa Command of the Pentagon, which Mm. is a leading imperial force on the continent of Africa. So I would say it's a mixed bag. And uh, in this regard, uh, we should not lose sight of the song that I understand is a staple on WPFW. I'm speaking of (laughs) Belly's tune about Washington, D.C. being a bourgeois town. I want all the colored people to listen to me. Don't ever try to get no home in Washington, D.C. Because it's a bourgeois town. It's a bourgeois town. I got a bunch of blues in them, I choke on a brother you. Oh, whip it. Of course, what Leb Belly was making reference to was this class schism that you're drawing attention to, uh, which I'm afraid to say, at least in the battle days of Jim Crow, also had a color characteristic uh, insofar as. Uh, White supremacy oftentimes meant that uh, the less melanin-rich Black people, because of being descendants from slave owners or for various reasons of that sort, oftentimes were higher on the class ladder. This is during the battle days of Jim Crow. And as I cite an introduction to the book, some of them actually... uh, were opposed to Jim Crow, not necessarily for the reasons of of, of humanity that uh, we could well imagine, but because they didn't like being grouped together with the melanin-rich Negroes, for example, in segregated uh, restrooms and segregated uh, hotels and and all the rest. So it's, it's a complicated picture, which I try to elaborate upon in this book. I know one of the things that you you talk about in the book that was actually kind of shocking to me, it was basically 
I guess, lighter skinned black people in D.C. kind of participating in Jim Crow in terms of their own businesses so that they would actually have businesses where black people couldn't come, couldn't patronize. Is that right? Am am I remembering that right from the book? Well, it's not just Washington. In Houston, Texas, for example, there is a a notorious uh, barbecue joint. Houston is known for its barbecue which was run by uh, black Americans, but uh, oftentimes did not like, did not allow black Americans to patronize <laughs> wow. the, the enterprise. And, and I, th- I think we, we, we need more writing and research on the subject. It shouldn't be that difficult to, to pull together. I mean, I think the evidence is there. It's just uh, a matter of pulling together, even though I understand why some might feel that recounting this history could be considered to be divisive or, contrary to the anti-white supremacist front. Uh, But I'm not so sure about that. No, I don't think so, because we're having conversations about what does white supremacy mean? It doesn't mean that you have to be white to support a white supremacist system. It doesn't mean that you have to be white to uphold imperialism. You know, in terms of the AFRICOM brother, the brother heading AFRICOM, you just said, right, that's holding up a system of white supremacy. Many people who get to Washington, D.C. as elected officials, you know, they're, um, you know, we had Hakeem Jeffries go to Israel recently and he was, I don't know, I want to describe it in a derogatory way unnecessarily. It's just, it was just such a, a disgrace when you have uh, Palestinian people being terrorized, brutalized under a system of apartheid, and you have um, an African-American man uh, over there, you know, standing side by side with someone who is a, a, a brutal racist like, like Netanyahu. So I guess I'm getting out of the book right now, <laughs> but I think it's good to talk about that kind of history because it's kind of this early example of what we're talking about now, you know, whether it's a barbecue joint where you're not going to even let other black people come into your store where, or whether you're going to be heading up an AFRICOM as, you know, the face of, of us imperialism and hegemony around the world, oppressing other black people or, you know, creating chaos on the continent. So does that work for you? I mean, that <laughs> seems to me, <laughs> I mean, I, I believe in, in, in painting an accurate picture and a full and comprehensive picture. And I believe in that not only because I think it's helpful for plotting strategy, but also because at times these trends recur. I mean, I, I don't think that this trend of U.S. apartheid where black people are presiding over segregated enterprises will recur. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm not sure if I feel confident enough to rule it out. <laughs> and, right. And, and it, it can exist without us knowing because how would the excluded know, right? <laughs> Unless we somehow bump into a door where we aren't allowed to go into. Right. But, you know, these, these, you know, these things kind of exist in, you know, up through the decades, you know, in, in very subtle ways, you know, who can get into certain sororities, who can, you know, just, uh, you know, that's a whole subject that, you know, we could spend, you know, another, you know, year on. So, but 
in the interest of finishing up here, because I know you have to, you have to go, you know, sticking with these kind of tidbits of stories that we want to be able to give to people. Can you talk about the heroism of Mary Church Terrell and Stein? And if you can get a little bit into Carl Bernstein's memoirs. Well, Mary Church Terrell was a historic and heroic figure who had roots actually in Memphis, Tennessee, where she was the daughter of one of the most affluent uh, black people of the late 19th century, but then went to Oberlin College in Ohio and migrated to Washington, where she spent um, a good deal of the first half of the 20th century. And she worked hand in glove with Anne Stein, who was a Euro-American woman who was an anti-Jim Crow activist, and along with lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild, they played a pivotal and vanguard role in terms of knocking down the walls of Jim Crow in the early 1950s, at least in the formal sense, in the legal sense, the juridical sense of knocking down the walls of Jim Crow. And Anne Stein, of course, had ties to the U.S. Communist Party, had ties to the left, uh, Mary Church Terrell, unlike some of her colleagues in the NAACP, of which she was affiliated, did not uh, stand down from working with communists, which made her quite unusual for that era. And is one of the reasons why she, too, has been subjected to biographical treatment, more than one biography for that matter, uh, because she was also a writer. Uh, I, I recommend her memoir, A Colored Woman in a White World, because she had uh, many uh, rich experiences. She traveled overseas quite a bit. She was multilingual. Uh, she was an intellectual. Uh, she is a person worth remembering. Now, Carl Bernstein, you, listeners may recognize that name from Watergate fame, but he grew up in the district, and his memoirs are, are quite fascinating. One deals with his parents who were communists and also involved in the desegregation battle in the district. And then his second memoir deals with his role as a reporter in Washington, uh, where he had access to a number of figures whose names I'm sure will resonate. I'm speaking of Walter Fontroy, for example, who you may recall was a colleague of Dr. King in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a representative in Congress uh, representing the district, and then uh, fell upon, I guess you could say, hard times and wound up going into exile abroad. But Bernstein's memoirs are very well written. They're very illustrative in terms of Washington's history. And for that reason, I recommend them. Okay, so we have another tidbit of the newest book by Professor Gerald Horn, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. But let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Christmas Day, better known as the 26th day of December. Everybody always remember these bourgeois blues. I got nothing to tell you. Just before I go, I want to 
is on the ground. I'm Esther Rivera. I'm talking to Gerald Horn about his new book. I know you have to go, Gerald. If it, is there any part in this section that we've talked about in terms of policing, kind of like the rise of this kind of multi-policing system here in Washington, D.C., the surveillance of people on the left, radicals, and some of the stranger occurrences that have happened. And, you know, when you talked about people, uh, you know, psychological, like, issues and stresses and maybe even experimentation on people. We don't know, but, you know, I can't help but think about Paul Robeson and what his son said was inflicted on his father and just the, the things that we know were actually part of the, the security state in terms of the, you know, targeting people and using, whether it's substances or just all types of, you know, methods to try to even make Martin Luther King, you know, kill himself. It's a really rich topic. And is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Well, yes, two points. I, I cite secondary literature with regard to that latter point concerning MK Ultra uh, experimentation on human beings. Washington, D.C. happens to be a kind of laboratory uh, for these uh, evil men. They're mostly men who are trying to develop uh, all kinds of toxic hallucinogenics and all kinds of manner of devastating bodies. And also would correlate that with the story of Elgin Baylor, who basketball fans may recognize. He was a star basketball player with roots in the district. In his memoir, he talks about when he was young, this would be in the 1940s, he was being chased by a car full of men who were trying to seize him. But he was fleet of foot and he was able to escape them. And I wondered, as I was reading that, uh, who were these men? Uh, What would they have done to him if they had caught him? And what happened to young black boys who were not fleet of foot? Uh, Where did they disappear to? Okay. And so he said it was a car full of white men. Oh, absolutely he did. Mm -hmm. And this was in the district, not like in Maryland or Virginia or... In the district. Right, right. Wow. That is definitely more to explore, more to read. And we will move forward next week to talk about the civil rights era, the Black Power era, and what we know, the explosion in 1968. But in all these discussions, there's so much that's left unsaid because, you know, you have to read this book and weave through all these narratives that uh, Gerald Horn has provided, Revolting Capital. Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Well, thank you for joining me today, uh, Gerald. I look forward to one last discussion about the book next week. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's special episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, and support us 
and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. And I link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Ivarum, I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. The music we played this hour included The Bourgeois Blues by Taj Mahal, The Bourgeois Blues by Lead Belly, Ace from In Common by Walter Smith III and Matthew Stevens, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you.